All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Page in my rhyme book, page in my rhyme book, page in my page in my page in my rhyme book. Hello. Yo. This is Ergo. You know, it is. It is. I'm Kiss. <laughs> I'm Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. It's been a hell of a little run here, Dame. What are we what are we wrapping today? We are sitting in the lounge of this this comfy notebook suite, closing it up, you know, having having some cocktails, throwing it back, concluding with our, our guest co-curator, the one and only, the illuminating. Mr. Nate Marshall is back Jesus. with us. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. What's up, y'all? <laughs> oh. Well, I think just for for uh for posterity's sake, let's let's get our, our little intro question and, and do what we do. In this time, how's the world treating you? How are you treating the world over there, Nate? Let's see, how's the world treating me? It's rough. It's been kind of a rough like week or so. Um yeah, just a lot of like illness and you know, I had a sort of death in the family, whatever, whatever. Um so yeah, I don't know. But so just that I'm sitting with that. I'm sitting with a kind of grief. And I've been trying to, I think, just listen, just like be still mm-hmm. yeah, as it relates to the world. Definitely condolences on your loss and love to your family. And we're all just carrying so much collective yeah. accumulative grief. Um, and so, yeah, don't want to smooth past it. And, you know, we, we cope. Don't also want to, we don't have to whatever, whatever it, right? Like I've been in a lot of meetings where people are coming in of like, I just got the news that, that I lost somebody. So for all the folks that are, that are experiencing that and also are holding all of our community uh, that, that are losing folks, we don't, we don't need to just zoom by pun intended. Uh, and, 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 you know, we, we, we got to heal together. <laughs> Um, yeah. You looked mad at yourself for the pun. No, you're, I did it on purpose. Uh, <laughs> I did it on purpose. It was like, I, it, it, it's it's needed. It's needed. It, it was utilitarian. It wasn't It wasn't for the sauce. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. The, one of the things to me that's funny about it is, uh, how can I say this? In a weird way, right? It feels almost selfish almost to be having a personal grief in this moment where there are these, you know, a series of like big collective griefs. Yeah, I don't know. It's just weird. It's just it's such a weird moment. Yeah, I was talking today with my therapist about in the first couple months of the pandemic watching how the like return to to grief specifically around the virus was bringing for so many people out the space to mark and grieve for people who had died a year, 5 years, 10 years earlier that they'd just been carrying and it was just in the world. And then collectively we shut that shit down quick. <laughs> And built our, our our walls and calloused and then had to work and work and work. Um, and I, I do feel like, at least for me and the people around me, there is kind of like either by design or by painful circumstance, a right now just a like commitment to and a dedication to like, no, like this is needed to let this hurt 
be there. So not to over-intellectualize what you're going through, but. No, that's um, cool. I think, you know, one of the things I'm also sort of holding or I'm thinking about too is I don't have any first cousins, which is really sort of odd and specific. Yeah, no first cousins. My my mom's the only child and my dad is the only one who ever had kids. You know, I have this like very wide extended family, but like a relatively narrow kind of like close familial relationship. And there's a weird way in which I have some joy around like the notion of funeral, the notion of home going, because it often was the space in which I'd get to see and meet and like interact with some of this like much wider family. And so I think part of the grief is like also, so, so I'll say it's my, uh, uh, my great uncle who passed, right? So he was my, my dad's mom's la- last living sibling. And so, you know, I'm thinking about like my, my aunt, um, his sister's funeral, like maybe two years back or something. And it got to be this thing where like all my dad's first cousins were there and their kids and all this. I feel like a loss, not only of him and of the sort of passing away of this generation that was that raised me, right? But I'm also like, man, and I don't get to have this moment where I get to like be like, oh, well, that's cousin so and so, and that's whomever, and da 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 da, and we like are finding out things we have in common or whatever, you know, just like that kind of breaking bread. I'm missing that. Yeah, the after funeral hangout can be some of the most fun familial parties that there are. And like the food's always pretty good and it's very relaxed. It's like super relaxed because everyone's had this shared experience. Honestly, I've even been to some funerals that were kind of cracking, which <laughs> I, know, I know is like a weird and complicated thing to say, but good production value. Like the, the yeah. pyrotechnics were strong, the, the projections, they did a hologram <laughs> type of thing. It was really good. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, the opposite, right? Like I'll never forget my, when I was like 10, my great grandfather passed and we had his funeral at this uh, funeral home right on, on 79th street. And the singer was so terrible. Everybody started <laughs> laughing. <laughs> and I think I was kind of the one to break, like my oldest sister, like she ran out the room and people were like, oh, she's breaking down. And we're all looking because we're like, no, she's laughing because this lady is awful. She was saying like, I, I own the sparrow. And if the eye was on the sparrow, it was cockeyed. <laughs> so, you know. It was on the sparrow and off the key. <laughs> um, so, you know, in that spirit, it, it's good to 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 have you on. It gets us, you know, catch some of those details, right? Like that's something that you that you help us with. So we we had you, you know, help us put together this list of these phenomenal writers and, and thank you for your assistance. Um, it was an, a great experience for us. But I, I want to start off with the first question that I asked everybody. And I want to get your relationship to the question, but also what you heard in the answers uh, about this relationship between writing, writer and like identity and practice. Because I think there was like a widespread of some kind of like rejecting the the question or the notion of there being a separation between people who are writers and who aren't. Um, and some like who don't even take it that seriously. And then some who like, though, I've always identified as, you know, can re- kind of remember their their development. So where do you sit on that spectrum? And also, what did you hear from some of these folks on, on, on that divide? Man, I loved that question and just the things that it brought out. Um, the one that I think I'm sitting with the most in some ways is really um, was probably like Natalie Moore's answer when she sort of talked about like, you know, being less concerned about 
the title and be, and being like, well, this is what I do or this is what I'm doing. So I, I thought about that. I thought about like what we got from Dream Hampton via Jamila Lemieux about uh, Writer's Right, which sounds like the same thing, but actually was a kind of rejection <laughs> of the title of writer. I certainly remember the point at which, and, and that's, you know, if, if my memory serves, that's kind of what I spoke about when we first talked was when I began to sort of personally identify as a writer. And I think now I'm less interested in that. <laughs> yeah, like I don't reject the premise of the question, but I do think, you know, writing is one thing I do in one way that I try to contribute to the world or puzzle things out for myself personally and, you know, be a part of my community. But, you know, it's one of many things that I do and one of sort of many things that I am. And I think, you know, some of this maybe comes from coming out of the slam and, you know, being in some of the communities that I was in and that I am in. Uh, But I, I think there was probably a point when I was a younger version of myself that I really centralized everything on my identity as a writer. And I feel like I'm moving away from that just as a matter of balance, right? Because because it's sort of, you know, like this This was a thing that a few people kind of came up against, right? I'm thinking about like Hanif and Jamila and some, some other folks. But like, if I don't write for a month, if I take a job that doesn't really have any relationship to my output as a writer, that doesn't make me more or less of a writer necessarily. But if I kind of want to set aside writing as a primary way that I'm engaging the world or think it, process and stuff, like that too is okay. It's fine, you know? Yeah. It often in these conversations that we've had, we thought that the complication was going to be around when they decided to call themselves a writer or own that identity. And what we found was that it was usually somewhere in between once they already had, and then life just threw some shit <laughs> and they had to recalibrate and what that even meant changed or what they were doing changed. Just, which of course makes sense. Like we don't hold the same relationship to our craft over time. I think about in the things I make, like I make them differently now than I did before. And there've been times where I've done it more and less. Yeah, of course it evolves. And it's not like a linear thing where I was not a writer, then I became one. And then that always meant the same thing. It sounds like what you're saying rings true for a lot of people is that you might decide that that is accurate. And then what that means continues to change and evolve. You know, I'll also say this too, is that like, I find myself in an interesting moment in my kind of walk as a writer because I just put out this project sort of on the late in the last year and I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't know if, when, or what the next Nate Marshall book will be. So I think what we want to do with the rest of this little debrief is kind of what we just started doing, which is unpack some of the responses that we got uh, throughout the suite, figure out some of the patterns and the through lines that emerged um, and a lot of it was in relation to some of the intro questions, Nate, that you had posed that you had wanted us to share with folks. You did the incredibly generous thing of actually listening to all the episodes, <laughs> which truly above and beyond. So I'm curious for you, what jumped out in response to those initial questions? I know there were a few that we alluded to with a bunch of the different guests. Man, people just had so many gems and so many great stories that that I have been sitting with since I encountered them and that I could want to continue to sit with. I don't know, you know, Natalie, the way that she spoke about the necessity of curiosity, just to what it means to be a journalist was sort of moving for me. And then I guess one, one theme that maybe kind of pulled across all of them was this question of critique because it, you know, it's, it's 
I think something that we all are, anyone who has any kind of public platform, which is to say sort of everybody (laughs) these days, (laughs) you know, I think if you're a thinking person, you are kind of thinking about how critique happens in that space, right? And, And how that is like really necessary and useful and an act of generosity. And also this way that I think people use to try and shut down folks, right? Or diminish folks or, um, or just be cruel. Yeah. It, yeah. If you think about the way from the critics end that Elizabeth Mendez Berry talked about critique as a communal process, as an, as a collective process. And then on the writerly end, the Adrian Marie Brown conversation talking about receiving challenging critique that she had to go through her defensive response to to get to then the next response and figure out what to do with and the the modeling or the showing of that publicly it seems like they both because of their work off the page kind of came to the same conclusion of like i have to do this work in relation to other people in a way that is accounting for power in a way that i think is not intrinsically built into the way that uh, both writing and critique work, which makes sense based on like what they write about and, and how they think. But it does just because people write about some shit doesn't mean that they model that behavior in real time, you know? Yeah. It, it definitely was a through thread that I think I was a little surprised by because I was expecting to talk much more about like editing and revision and like, you know, your writing partners that like the internal process of like working through limitations and trying to strengthen understanding but this notion of like critique or critic as like an explicitly external and somewhat public exchange as a way to like i don't know create this this generative tension was a lesson that i think what i think we need is <laughs> and we were talking about this a little before we came on is like the rappers have done such a job of denigrating the criticism and the critiques that we need we need a critic rebrand i think the word has become a little watered down or has become such this hater adjacent thing and like just about negative destruction that like we need a new word for this type of like intense analysis that is trying to get us to a new place. And Nate, you're a smart person. You got any ideas for another word? I don't know. (laughs) Like maybe you're not like a critic. You're just like a public A&R. It's like, I'm just, (laughs) I'm just trying to help you go platinum. In yeah. Life, right. <laughs> no, I'm trying to help us all go platinum. <laughs> right. Everyone. Right. Actually, we should keep platinum in the ground because why are we raping the earth? <laughs> like and extracting. Yeah. Uh, maybe stealing some of that um, influencer uh, space. Maybe like getting some of that yeah. off. Like we're trying to influence discourse or something. I don't mm. know. In mm. some ways, I think this is like it's an influencer kind of that, or at least it's. It's an attempt to rebrand. It's like, what do you call the person who's famous in a very specific way? Maybe just for being famous in that very specific <laughs> way, right? Not necessarily for for doing a thing or for entertaining us. In a, well, I guess it is entertainment. But yes, I mean, that's kind of what an influencer is. So so an artistic influencer, meaning like someone influencing the artist? Mm. Mm. Huh. I like that. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> that's, another, that's another shit term, though. Yeah. That's a, yeah, no, it's bad. I'd say it's... of loaded, terrible words that people don't like. I When I hear people say influencer, like non-ironically, I'm like, wow, this is just <laughs> a side of the world and the internet that I have no encounter with. They're like, oh no, yeah. that's my career aspiration. It goes in the pantheon of words to describe people that I don't 
understand what it means. It's like when someone calls someone a creative, mm-hmm. 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 I fundamentally don't know what that means. It's like saying I'm an adjective. That, yeah. that is not a noun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like, this is maybe slightly older, but I think about like when folks would call, and I mean, this still happens. Like when people talk about being like a young professional or like a young black professional, I'm like, (laughs) I mean, kind of isn't every, unless you're like, I don't know, like maybe like Magic Johnson's kids or something don't don't have to have jobs, but like we all have some sort of like- You're a professional something. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think like someone working at McDonald's is not a professional. I hope they're a professional. Otherwise, I'm going to get sick when I eat the hash browns. Like, also, I love your emphasis on hash browns. That was really cool. Yo, hash yeah. browns. No, like, I like it. I like I like yeah, the rebrand. Yeah. Um, we're, we're like joking about position, but I think that was one of the things that kind of like came up a little bit, even, even as, as we're joking about like hip hop and like the, the creative scene, right? Like that using text and re- whether it was journalism or or criticism or some type of direct relationship to either a music scene or even a movement scene uh, as a way to kind of like <laughs> be a professional, right? Like as a, as a way to, to stake your contribution, right? Like I heard Elizabeth say, I just want to be at concerts, right? Like, and I don't want to be just hanging out, right? Like I want to be in the green room for a reason, right? Like I am the anti-influencer in that sense. Um, that's something that I would want like young people who I teach to like see a little bit more of like the pen and page is not just this flowery thing or this like emotional thing. It is also a way to enter and engage rooms mm-hmm. differently. I think it, w- it was Adrian when, when she said the thing about, um, about understanding that writing as a platform allowed her to reach far more people than she ever did or could in a, you know, just like facilitating. But yeah, that really resonated with me because I was like, right, there is a way that like I put stuff in a book and it can go places that I I myself cannot or just will not go. <laughs> That's the other piece. You can ship to a you can ship this to a bookstore that you don't have to get on a flight to. <laughs> right. Especially funny. especially now. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. I'm gonna do the Montana Book Festival. You know where I'm not gonna go? Montana. No, I mean, I'm sure it's very beautiful. Shout out to all the listeners in Montana. But I, but yeah, but like there is a way that people engage with your ideas across time and space in ways that you have no, like it's just much bigger than you. It becomes much bigger than you when it's something that lives outside of you, even, even this podcast, right? Like, and I'm sure that's something y'all think about is the way that people have engaged with the pod who you otherwise would have never talked to. And maybe now you have, maybe now you've spoken to them, but like, yeah. I will say that none of our top 50 cities are in Montana. I just checked our stats. <laughs> I knew that's what you was doing too. <laughs> we got, oh, no. let's see, we have more listeners in Pretoria, South Africa than we do in Montana. Dang. Shout out to Pretoria. Yeah, definitely yeah. shout out to Pretoria. Yeah, shout out to Pretoria. So, so what were some other takeaways or things that, that uh, really grabbed you? I am sort of drawn and maybe because I'm always I've always been drawn to like love and the sort of language of love but I'm thinking about some of the ways that that came up right so it's very clear to me from hearing Hanif talk about his own criticism how love is sort of central you know but also like the thing that um Adrian Marie Brown said where she said a lot of people are engaging with me who don't know that I love them yeah 
if there's not a better way to to encapsulate what it means to be a public person, especially a public person on the internet at all, mm. right. you know. Yeah, particularly a justice-facing public person, you know. And yeah, sometimes absolutely. we think about it the other way of like, there are people encountering me who don't love me. That's in some ways like easier to deal with because you can't expect everyone to love you. But to be trying to give that out and have people not get it of like, no, 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 I'm doing this for you and for us is a is a very challenging thing to to just accept yeah it reminds me of what is that like old uh che Guevara quote that everybody sort of like uses or misuse it like translates r- roughly to like what's it? it is said a revolutionary act is a great act of love or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> i think he said or whatever at the end <laughs> yeah absolutely. absolutely i don't know why i'm, I'm just nitpicking your language today <laughs> no it's cool i you know i have a lot of I, I do a lot of that i do a lot of the like or you know hey <laughs> Exactly. Such is life. Anyway, so yes, love, <laughs> yeah. love as a not just craft piece, but as part of the like intention of the work. Yeah, yeah, and I think just love as a, as a kind of praxis, right? And he, even folks who like didn't speak about it, like it, it occurs to me that when Natalie is engaging, you know, a story like the South Side or even like the Almighty Black Peace Donation, that is coming from a real sense that these that these people are worthy of love, are worthy of something, right? Are are and that you know, these are places that deserve to be wrestled with in these, in these ways. Right. That leads me to something else that jumped out was what do you do when the people and the places that you're doing this out of love for don't reciprocate. And I think about like the, the ways that almost everybody talked about acts of verbal aggression and or violence that they've encountered in response to their work. The separation of that from critique, first and foremost, that those are two different things that we're talking about and that you don't get to deflect and be violent as a form of critique. That's a different thing. Um, but but specifically, you know, I'm thinking about Natalie's story of having people, of having men in response to her books physically threatening her or, um, you know, a lot of the work that Elizabeth does off the page or our conversation with Jamila, just seeing this. And I think it's hand in hand with the, some of the questions around curiosity and even Hanif in in a different context, talking about like as a young person, understanding that his curiosity could exist within a certain neighborhood, but that there were boundaries to what he was even allowed to be curious of. And that part of his writing work is a reclamation and a declaration of, no, I get to be curious about and engage and learn and speak on anything I want to speak on. Um, yeah. I mean, you asked this question about curiosity to start. Um, were you thinking about it in, in some of the relationship to some of the the danger in that response or, or how did their answers to that question or that theme surprise you or what stood up? Well, one thing I'll say is I, I do really like how Hanif in, in his discussion really lifted up this notion that like when you're when you're a young person who like grows up in the hood or grows up in a particular kind of neighborhood, you don't fear that neighborhood. <laughs> at, you know, at least not entirely, right? There might be certain You may fear them niggas, but you don't fear sl- them. Right, or like but that <laughs> those specific niggas. Like, those specific niggas. <laughs> but like but he's he's like, yeah, like I'm way more frightened to like this this like rich suburb this right here, cause they ain't no law over there, right? Yeah, they don't love us. Right. And they don't love us, right? 
They don't even have any practice loving anyone who looks like us, who talks like, who has any relationship to us. I think that that's a conversation that maybe is not had enough in public. Mm. So that so that was one thing I was just kind of thinking about. Um, a thing I, I'm struck by is the way that folks react to to this kind of like, you know, what what got called a lot of bad faith reading, or re, you know, reacted to the to these kinds of abuse, and the way that they sort of did seek to protect themselves, learn from it, adjust, maybe restrict certain kinds of access to themselves. And I'm also really struck by what access means for folks in different bodies, right? So this is a thing that Hanif kind of spoke to when he was like, look, you could still hit me on my website and like that comes to me, which my, my stuff does not come to me, I don't <laughs> think. <laughs> like it, it it does, but there is a kind of like filtering of other people, right? So I was like, dang, man, that's wild. But I did think about like how he he spoke to like, yeah, but that's real different because if you're a woman on the internet, um, especially a woman of color, especially a black woman, then those things are entirely different. And I think we saw that play out, right? With hearing the way that like Jamila has experienced some of these things and had to like think through it, even around like her family, like her, the you know, the stuff with her pops is kind of just like ghastly to me. You know, even the way that Natalie, right, is kind of like, I'm thankful that I had this like male co-writer to sort of intercede in these ways, right? Or people being like, you need me to walk you to your car. Or even her her dad being like, Streets is talking. Like, what's <laughs> <Yeah>. up? <laughs> you know? um, Which is a funny thing to hear from your father. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. You don't necessarily think your father has his ear to the streets in, in those contexts. So I guess it depends on the dad, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. This, yeah, this, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair point. It was impactful for us. You know, because this this exercise we've been doing of trying to have these more intentional, like compact conversations that are more directly connected to each other, you know, it recommitted something that has obviously been present for us. But, you know, this this commitment to addressing gendered violence and, you know, making sure we are platforming anti-patriarchal movement and art and creation, because, you know, even with as many conversations that we had, it it, it was almost surprising how unsurprising uh, it, it was for for like, you know, I think our first three or four guests saying that the major threat I've engaged is not, you know, like Big Brother or like the publisher or like the man holding us down. It was men, right? <laughs> Different from the man. It <laughs> from <was> men. the man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and, and, you know, I think even for us in terms of our production flow, we also had the conversation with Angela Davis in the middle of this. We Which enter, was great. <laughs> thank you. We enter every conversation asking other things you want to talk about and not talk about. And like, you know, her thing was black feminism, right? And so this this notion of curiosity not even being around intellect in the sense of like, talking about theory or a specific ideology, really speaking to, I think, a, a, a writing that is more needed of, you know, men have a triggered, violent response to the violence of men being named, right? So it wasn't just mm-hmm. women are writing in general and I don't like that, right? It's women are writing about big puns, domestic abuse. Women are writing about toxic masculinity. Women are writing about feminism, which is naming a positional violence and that the response is not a, a counter writing or a good faith reading, right? It is, it is this violent threat. And so, you know, I think the question that we need to take away, particularly us three, so said men enjoying the dialogue, right? Like, ooh, that's a juicy <laughs> story is, is, you know, I think, you know, 
what do we do with our bodies? But I think in this conversation, like what writing prompts, what writing intervention do we need to be doing about that specific response, not just patriarchy and violence abstractly? Yeah. And how do you do that in a way that acknowledges that and wrestles with that and sort of calls other men to account, but isn't speaking out of turn or speaking over um, the really necessary work that these women are doing, right? Or that uh, like washes our particular hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's actually something, Nate, that I've heard you and we've talked about in other contexts and when you were on Versus a couple years back and you were half or like in the midst of revisions for your most recent book. I, I remember you talking about this idea of how do you write a story where you're not the hero? How are you wrestling with that or thinking about that uh, these days? Okay, so this is the thing. I always say or feel like I haven't I haven't written in a long time. And then I look up and like I actually <laughs> have, but it's been sort of, unless I'm working on a specific project, it feels sort of undirected or kind of wide in these ways. So I guess for me, it's, it's kind of twofold, right? Um, one, I've just been doing a lot of writing in service of things, right? So for example, like um, when my uncle passed, like they asked me to write something to like be in the obituary thing. So I like wrote a poem for him. You know, that has to do with my relationship to him kind of, but it's not really about me. You know, it's not about celebrating me or platforming me. It's about like paying honor to this like elder now ancestor. But even beyond that, I think one thing I've been doing, I've been sort of playing around in fiction, which, you know, don't, don't expect to see anything maybe ever, but certainly not soon. But I think part of that has been trying to almost do some like archaeology or like self-archaeology through through the frame of this kind of fictionalized version of things. Um, because one of the things that I am interested by or am trying to kind of unlock for myself is how how is it that young men are trained to be the sort of person that's gonna like fuck with Jamila and her dad because she's like saying some real true shit about R. Kelly, right? Or the sort of person that's going to threaten Elizabeth because she's saying some real true shit about pun. I don't know. I'm trying to like, maybe like get to the heart of a particular kind of wound with the hope that that can be like maybe a personal roadmap for myself, but also for other people, hopefully. Which connects so much to the, to the Adrian conversation, right? Of that's the question that she was trying to make space for. And I think one of the things we recognize at the end and because that was, you know, it's Adrian, so it's always fractals on fractals and everything was super meta <laughs> of, um, you know, revision within the process helped us name writing as a part of this accountability. And I think a method in which we are negotiating or trying to repair some of these power dynamics or imbalances. That's something that I've experienced in community, but I also want to like systematize more is, you know, for lack of a better word, like, you know, how do we use the accountability statement as like (laughs) a thing that is not just the public thing, but a part of how we are understanding how to respond to harm and how to build process. What that makes me think is about the trickiness of all of that happening in public. And I don't mean with other people. I'm like, it doesn't have to be alone or in public. There's another one, which is in community. Um, But I think about like, you know, Nate, you obviously know the 
the LTAB world and I think about the ways that people's writing about relationships to power and pain and emotional relationships to these structural things becomes a public facing mechanism of performance or it's something you write in your journal that nobody sees and the trust that it would take between a group of people to create that middle room. And maybe that's something that writers have that we just don't know about. <laughs> like, I don't know if for you, there's space with dark noise people or other people you've been writing with for a long time, where it actually can be some of that communal processing and unpacking work. Um, I think that is a thing that happens or that I'm finding now more and that I'm attracted to in like my writing and kind of, I would say like thinking communities. And those were probably conversations that maybe a year ago, five years ago, two years ago, we would have been having on Twitter with other folks chiming in or this or that. But I've one, I think a lot of people's, you know, relationship to those spaces or even if they're on those things has shifted. And it's just like easier to have a sort of a better, more nuanced conversation than that because you're doing key things like assuming best intent. I think that's one thing, but I but I think you're you're right, or you said something that really struck me, Daniel. A lot of times when I was a young person and probably still now, I would be wanting to have a conversation with one person or a set of people um, who were relatively close to me. And I didn't necessarily feel like I could have that conversation. And so as a way of having 300 people, (laughs) absolutely. I would get on an LTAB stage. I mean, so like, you know, here's, here's a, an example. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. If we're no, it's, no, it's okay. It's okay. But I think about like my mom, right. Or like my parents, right. So like I grew up, you know, both my parents are like, like in, in recovery from addiction. Right. And so that is like a thing that really shaped how I grew up and how I came to know of and think of the world. Right. And that's not a thing I ever really spoke to them about until I started writing about it and they had feelings about that writing. And so then would engage me and sometimes be really mad or be really hurt or confused or whatever. Um, But it like opened up different kinds of possibilities for our relationship. And, you know, ultimately I'm glad that some of those things happened, but I am also like, man, maybe I should just like, I want to put the kind of productive pressure on myself to just have the conversation with the person who I mean to have it with. And sometimes the writing just helps me process and put my feelings in order. But like there's um, a poem in the in the new book, in the newest book called um, Only Boy, right? That sort of talks about the experience of I'm, a, I'm the only brother in my family, right? I was able to have conversations with my mom over the summer, kind of pre the book coming out, because I had done that processing work of writing the book to be like, look, there are ways that I was sort of excluded from things or pedestaled in certain ways in the family that I never asked for or that did particular things to me that I'm having to process and her or my sisters would be like, oh, I never realized that. I never thought about you that like if we went to the the salon or whatever to get our hair done, you were the only person who didn't go. And what that maybe did, like that just didn't occur. You just didn't have to go. You went to the barbershop, Right. So yes, I'm, I am thinking about just writing as a kind of conversation, right? Which is something that Adrian sort of spoke to about writing as a conversation or discourse or something to spark that and how that can be productive, but how the, I think there are also ways just me growing up and coming into a different kind of maturity, want to try to have some conversations as conversations, <laughs> you know? Well, and she, she said that too, right? She was like, I tried to have my writing as conversational as possible. Yeah. 
But there's a big difference between writing conversationally and conversating for sure. Right. To something you just said, you know, that being an example of it opened up that conversation. But then there's the other piece of like, you can have the conversation with a kind of defense, not in that instance, in the like on stage instance, because like how ugly can it get? There's 300 other people here, right? I think there's a a premise that that can create a little bit of a buffer or a little bit of protection. Or if 150 of those people are cheering, then I know that this can't be too bad. Or, you know, there are all these like, uh, receivers of the response to it that informs it. And, and I know even for me, like, yeah, it's much harder to just have the conversation. And I get why. I mean, I, especially for young people, right? Especially, you know, I don't think I would have had the skills as a 16-year-old to say, yo, mom, like, this is what I was thinking about this thing that we live through, right? So like one, one thing that we were sort of speaking about before I think we hit record we were talking about how all of the uh, the folks in the suite were kind of of like a relatively similar age. Like they're all probably within about 10 years of each other or so. They're all like slightly older than me, right? So that is a kind of unintentional choice on our part. You know, and, and I'm thinking about like, you know, mentees and sort of previous mentees of mine who are 10 years younger than me, whatever. And I think we said a thing in the conversation about how you know, maybe young people who have grown up around these sort of technologies that make everyone a public figure have a different relationship to them and a different relationship, even a certain kinds of nuanced conversations as they come into their adulthood and come into their politics and whatever. And in part, the reason why young people don't necessarily have those skills is because they're not skills we prioritize, right? You know, like when we, when we talk about, say, in a history class, we're teaching students like, this is what happened. This is the interpretation of that thing that happened, right? And then you have an assignment to write a paragraph. And in that paragraph, you're going to make a definitive claim. Right, right. And that's not teaching anyone how to have a kind of courageous or rigorous conversation. Yeah, so I don't know. So I am thinking about like how this suite might have looked different if we were, if we had picked a bunch of people who were in their kind of like early 20s or even late teens and how we would maybe have criticisms for that or feel disappointed in that, but how some of that is a representation of like the failure of elders to like equip young folks to have critical conversations. Yeah. Back to critique, always back to critique. Well, and it goes to something that we talked about in the Angela episode, which like Damon said, happened in the middle um, and then got reiterated in the Adrian episode of like, so for a long time when there was nuance around conflict in many different kinds of spaces, whether it's movement spaces, creative spaces, family, people just didn't address it, right? They said, we can't do that. We don't have time for that. We're not going to do it. There is an insistence on addressing it now and a refusal to sweep it under the rug. Communally, collectively, culturally, there is like, I think, a rejection of that. But that doesn't mean we know how to address it, <laughs> right? Just because we've decided we're not going to skip over it anymore doesn't mean that then we know what to do. And so that's what it feels like generationally is happening is we're trying to figure out, all right, so there's all this shit that was just private business or that we don't, we don't air that out. If we're going to, what do we do now? And how do we do that in a way that doesn't cause more pain basically? Yeah. And writing, I think can be a really helpful tool for that just because it gives some opportunities to think through your thoughts multiple times and get to the third thought, you know? Yeah, and and hopefully to like process 
and hold space for your own feelings without moving from that in a space that reifies harm on someone else intentionally or unintentionally. Just that that kind of step can be really key. Yeah, you don't have to talk the whole time. You can just journal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm really I'm really thinking about the, the these notions of of platform, right? Cuz like, you know, Adrian talked about platform in like the largest sense of now her name means something and so she exists in the world like beyond herself. Uh, but even the the parallel between LTAB and also just to acknowledge that like, we have new listeners <laughs> that sure. might not have been around the first 10 episodes. So like LTAB is louder than a bomb. <laughs> the, the, the largest youth slam poetry festival in the world started here in Chicago. And like a lot of our community <laughs> right, was nurtured by, if not that explicit space, the extended space and platform that it created. Um, and so like paralleling the LTAB stage to Twitter in a sense of like, you know, the three minute writing to judges scores versus like the 280 character writing to retweets of how it has like created new space and new discourse and new like even language, but also I think taken away some of this space for nuance, which was another thing that I think you pulled out um, that is like so integral to not only writing, but I think growing or transforming our humanity. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciated the way that she was talking and thinking about platform. Cause I know for me, like, so I, you know, I competed in louder than Obama, as y'all know for years as a young person and kind of by the end of that was like fairly well known in that space. And then they made a documentary out of my last year in which I kind of become the kind of hero or protagonist of this film, right? Which is strange. And I think it's like a thing that I've really struggled with. Like it's opened up a lot of opportunity and it's been really great. But I also realized, like, I, you know, I worked at Young Chicago Authors, an organization that does that for, uh, for a couple of years. And something that always struck me when I was working there is like, damn, I can't just do my job. Because if my job is like being the director of national programs, my second sort of unpaid job is also to be Nate Marshall from Louder Than a Bomb, whatever. And like, those jobs are not the same thing. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes they're actually like working in direct conflict, right? Because like, I can't necessarily be this like vaguely charismatic 17-year-old when I have to like tell someone you're not allowed into space because you harm someone or because we need to have some conversation. You know, th- those just things aren't aren't always congruent. And so- yeah, it's 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 funny. People don't realize uh, from experience how useless, vague charisma can be sometimes. Like, <laughs> I feel like I, I'm just overflowing with like it's not over the top, just very vague charisma, and it it doesn't get us as far as we we may think. <laughs> it it'll get you farther than no charisma. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But then when you see re- specific charisma, you're yeah, like, oh, like, oh, that's oh, a shit. that's a different skill. <laughs> Shit, I'm gonna have to learn to weave or something. I gotta figure out something else. <laughs> I gotta learn to edit. But you know, I, I don't know. I think some of that comes from like having a society that's largely been dominated by men, because often like you know, there's a certain kind of man that traffics in a sort of vague charisma. Mm-hmm. It's a certain kind of training that many men get. Um to sort of speak loud and say nothing. I'm just gonna call him out. I'm just gonna say Michael Eric Dyson's name. And we're just going to live that life. <laughs> That's how we're going to do it. No one's done it. Yikes. I'm just, I'm here. I'm here to do it. Because it's so vague. He hasn't gone high enough to be like the real spot of of criticism. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm throwing them in there. Wow, beef with an R and B singer has somehow has it's grown really into beef with, beef with a Christmas. public intellectual. Yeah, <laughs> wow, <laughs> beef with a public intellectual. Damn, that's a great uh, game. Actually, we, we might oh, have man. to save that for other. Yeah, you're gonna. Have I, to, n- I never yeah. thought we were gonna encounter the R and B singers we named. I'm a little worried <laughs> if the trajectory of this show continues, yeah. we might encounter the public intellectual. Yeah, that's true. We might step oh, on some buckets. <laughs> <laughs> wow can we talk about nuance for one more second though because yeah. there was a quote that you had pulled nate that you mentioned that i think would be actually a good place to end and it relates to what we've been talking to what was the quote yeah absolutely so uh, elizabeth mendez berry and when she was sort of speaking about critique and speaking about the way one approaches critique and and how that critique is a kind of gift to an artist not an indictment or a foreclosure she said this thing that i love nuance is the place where possibilities live. And I've just been thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So where, and we, I think this could be a, an everyone answer. Mm-hmm. Where is a nuance that you're trying to like make more room for that you think would be really helpful either in your work? Yeah, let's, let, let's keep it in the work. Like what's a, a nuance you're trying to, to emphasize? Mm. You know, one I'm thinking about, and maybe because I've been thinking about it for some years, some of the ways we talk about sexual violence, particularly the sexual violence that happens to young men in particular, maybe like young cis straight men that they then kind of reify onto other people. Because I'm thinking about the nuance, the blurriness between something that's like not consensual or that a young man is kind of unwittingly brought into that then they also wear as a particular kind of conquest, right? I mean, it's the thing. So I'm thinking about like one of my early sexual experiences and maybe a few of them where like things were kind of done to my body without any sort of question about like, is this okay? Do you like this? Whatever, whatever. And how I was both sort of confused and maybe, you know, I wouldn't have said it in this way at the time, but like in retrospect, sort of upset by these things. But I was also like, yeah, like this shit happened. Like, I'm lit. I'm a Mac or whatever, you know, whatever language one would have used as like a 13 year old horny boy, you know, also you're like horny, you know, your hormones are kind of going crazy. And so I'm, I'm thinking about like the nuance of that. Right. Cause I wouldn't name that as an, as assault, but like given the, some of the definitions that we have to think about that it would be, but like, what you know, but then maybe is that a, a limit of our definition? Just like, what is that? A, if I can figure out, or if we can figure out how to do some of these things better, then maybe we can like create better versions of young men who don't think of that kind of coercion or that kind of, if I don't ask the question, so I don't hear a direct no, then I'm okay to go for, you know, like maybe we can stop some of those patterns if we figure out a better way to think through how that stuff happens to us. Or happens in our community. So that that's one place in nuance I'm thinking about. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think they feel like two. So um the big one for me would be like uplifting the marvelous nature of agency and like uniqueness and the dynamic of like the singular person and like every person and body should have sovereignty over their space and their self and you know their experience and existence uh, and that existing amongst like collective solidarity and like shedding of individualism. Right. So like 
uh, seeing ourselves as unique and having agency, but not seeing ourselves as an untethered individual is probably like the biggest level of nuance. Because usually once you shed individualism, people think that you're saying get rid of the personal or get rid of the specific or the particular. And it's like, no, we need to participate in a collective so we have the capacity to address the particular. And then I think that that goes to my like nuanced language of like anti-violent force <laughs> of like, I, I think we equate violence and force. Um, and so when talking about protection beyond violence, people think of like passiveness or just like letting the bullies win. And so like kind of in that conversation with Natalie of like, people do do fucked up shit. <laughs> there is like, you know, there may not be a cultural pathology, but pathological behavior occurs and we experience it. Our, there's like a collection of trauma from that. Um, and so being able to have real conversation about that, that does not re- reify violence, uh, but also is not this like, I think what people think of how they've been taught nonviolence as passiveness or do nothingness or, or being liberal about harm. There's a nuance there that I call anti-violent force as a way to like proactively protect people, but also talk about the fucked up shit people do. And those two are connected, right? Of like the fucked up shit people do is not an individual action. It is connected to these collective structures and patterns. So those those are some of my nuances where I think all of our revolutionary possibilities can begin. Yeah, that's a big... I remember the first time someone made a distinction between private property and personal property to me, it kind of messed me up. I was like, oh. Mm, that's, that's <laughs> like you should have a house, right? Like you should have a place where you sleep and people should not be able to come in and take that. That doesn't mean that you then own this land and... and Right. Know, doesn't yeah. mean you can sell the right to the oil. <laughs> right. <laughs> what about um, you, Kiss? Mine is in some ways related. It's about like intergenerational inheritance of trauma response and survival instinct and the ways that we carry the things that both like ancestrally and then like more even more directly, like a couple of generations, the things that they've done to stay around and alive and growing in all the nuance of this crazy world and how choosing not to participate and to challenge those things or step away from them uh, doesn't have to be a rejection of that person, right? So the example, like most directly for me is like, I can have a flight reaction to something that feels like a threat to me, recognize that the reason why I feel that is because like my family has survived by fleeing, <laughs> like that was our move, <laughs> um, and then choose to stay and fight, right? Or stay and do something else. But it doesn't mean that that instinct is wrong or comes from an like necessarily it could be from a violent place but it doesn't necessarily have to be but i'm not stuck in making that choice but if i can recognize it i can give it almost more generosity and be like this served something i can recognize it kind of smile at it and then choose to set it aside um you know and so that happens familiarly and then i you know i think about it also just in relationship to sociopolitically and privilege and specifically I it's another conversation for another time but around Israel and understanding people's thought processes and why and not saying that that's uh, okay but saying I understand yeah like I understand the idea of in an era of nation states the only thing that will keep you safe 
is a colonial nation state. Like I get that logic. It's just incorrect <laughs> and violent and not acceptable. But I can I can be gracious enough to not say these people are being stupid or you know white supremacy. Like I can understand the logics of white supremacy even if they're still unacceptable. Right. Right. And it, and it helps me fight against them. Yeah. You, so you know what we just did? We we just gave ourselves big assignments. Oh, so, fuck. so so they can <laughs> they can be personal or can be we gotta write books they don't shit. have to be public oh, no. but i think you know we answered like what nuance we want to explore yeah. to, to create new possibilities um and i think like those as longer writing assignments that could be you know ongoing or just like a little a little blurb or piece but i think we all just uncover some really big heavy things uh with with different levels of vulnerability and for ourselves like not leaving that on the cutting room floor and sticking with that. And then for folks who are listening, like what is a nuance you want to explore to make something more possible as, as a, as a prompt for you to, to work with. Shit. Damn. I didn't even know we we're building a prompt. That's good. We got to get the fuck out of it. It's not going to get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, thank you so much for all your contributions to the suite. It just felt good to get to make this with you and 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 get to chop it up a couple times also. Um, any last thoughts? And if not, how can folks find you in the ways you want to be found? Well, I guess one last thought is I've been on this show now like a bunch of times. <laughs> um and I'm also thinking about how two of the people in our suite were also retreads for y'all. You know, listening to the previous conversations and listening to these ones, so many different rich things came out. And so I'm just meditating on like the usefulness of like continuing to be in conversation with people over years and times, like how this show is is a kind of is a really powerful kind of capsule. And so I'm really grateful to y'all for doing this work. And then I guess, yeah, of course. Uh, then where can you find me? Uh, <laughs> yeah, at Illuminate Mics everywhere until I decide not to be there. And then after that, I guess, uh, nate-marshall.com. And go get Finna. <laughs> go get the book. Yeah, Thank you. Please do. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And if you've been looking at Ergo Kiss recently, he did some like, super cool but kind of white boy shit where he, fu- he found you found a pandemic oh. safe sauna oh. i saw this in your story but then Glowing. it seemed like you were standing outside with your shirt off when yeah, you came well. out of the sauna which is the the super white boy so, part of the <laughs> <laughs> lol so i'm not i'm not here to defend against that claim i am here to bring some nuance okay thank you. so when one of my uh paler compatriots goes for a jog outside in, in the winter there is no heating up beforehand they're just like stretching and going mm-hmm. it was 250 degrees inside that sauna Respect. so there's there's a little bit of buffer of that will bring the temp up and then you can bring look i'm not here to, to defend to, my to the point of, of time capsuling and archiving moments and we're going to archive this white boy moment for folks who don't <laughs> who are not listening right now we just experienced a polar vo- vortex this week. Like it has been <laughs> unsafe to to mammals in Chicago. <laughs> and so I don't care if you came out of a 250 degree, you entered into something that was drastically different. This is what I mean about you inherit things. And you have to choose where to let it go. The latitude from which my ancestors descend, they all got their own sauna shit and it's okay. this cold. So I got to choose whether to hold on to that or let it yeah. go. Um, 
What you don't know is that right before that photo, I dumped a bucket of cold water on my head. Oh, see. Uh, which takes it to a whole nother degree. Sleep, Dude, sleep, what? Sleep. That is... <laughs> don't knock it till you try it. This should feel... It feels... I've been glowing ever since. Um, this is deeply Caucasian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. We gotta go. We gotta get I'm gonna go get in the sauna. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Much less to the people. Peace. Peace. <laughs>